how much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or FASD in unborn children. It is more common than many people realize. It may lead to lifelong physical and developmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD and find out about this surprising reality. Welcome, welcome, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of our little podcast. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighborhood podcaster slash village idiot slash interviewer for this episode. And we have something special today, I must say. We've got something special. Today I'm at the CDS in Caloundra. I'm joined by a number of staff at the CDS who have been nicely enough to come volunteer to participate in this little panel interview we've got going. Today we will discuss diagnosing FASD and the issues surrounding it. Could we go around the room and just uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and we'll start from, want to go clockwise? Me? Yeah, you sir. So Jessica Doak, I'm a psychologist. I'm on the younger uh, YFASD assessment team. So we assess the little kitties from um, three to seven. And I'm Denise, so I'm a psychologist as well. And mm. I work uh, on the older FASD, uh, in the older FASD uh, clinic. And we see children mainly over the age of seven or eight and conduct lots of assessment for those kids in the clinic. And I'm Nicole Wood and I work with Denise on the, the sort of older FASD clinic team. I'm Kate, I'm an occupational therapist. I um, provide support into the young FASD diagnostic team and we're providing some movement assessments. I'm Nicole Lord, I have two hats. I'm a speech pathologist in the young FASD team and the program manager in the older FASD team um, and I do um, a lot of the coordination for the young team as well. And I'm uh, Dr Heidi Webster, I'm the paediatrician in the Child Development Service uh, with the Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Clinic. So that's what we've been calling FASD. <laughs> I'd like to just focus on you for a sec, Dr Heidi. First off, because you helped establish this clinic in 2015, the FASD clinic within CDS. Tell me how you became first involved with FASD. Okay, so I became involved through a patient's mother asking me about her child's developmental diagnoses and could they be called FASD. And I had known in my training uh, years ago about fetal alcohol syndrome, which most paediatricians have some training in, but I had no experience in diagnosing that. A number of the allied health staff had assessed him and he had a number of other developmental diagnoses. And when I first met him, he was actually in the care of his auntie and his grandmother because his mum was in an alcohol rehabilitation inpatient service. Then when she came out of that and came to a meeting, she told me she'd learned about FASD and could this be what her little boy was experiencing because she had drunk alcohol during her pregnancy and was unaware of FASD at that time. It wasn't a, an intentional thing that she'd done and I didn't really know enough and didn't know how to diagnose it. So I went off to the Gold Coast 
Child Development Service FASD clinic where they were running education training workshops for professionals and learned about it. Came back and, and saw her with the child again and was able to say, yes, actually, he does meet the criteria for a FASD diagnosis. And from that then... I assisted the other allied health members of our team to learn about FASD and from there started doing our own assessments. So then in March 2016, the Australian guideline to the diagnosis of FASD came out and our clinic staff again did training and we started using the Australian guide as opposed to the American four-digit guide for diagnosis that we had been doing. And gradually over that time, we've had a number of our staff trained and we've expanded our clinic with the research team and people from University of Sunshine Coast Psychology Department, as well as Occupational Therapy Department with Kate Hilly. And we've continued to grow in terms of our FASD diagnosis assessment and then post-diagnosis support for families. So it just just took off from when you were just dealing with a parent, just took off from there. Slowly, slowly but gradually, and we have sought external funding to try and help us expand because we needed more staff. It's quite a lot of work working up these families to even come to assessment, to get all the right information we need to do before they arrive, and to assist them to come for a few days' worth of assessments and then a lot of staff time to do the assessments because it, it does require a lots of different people doing lots of different um, things to assess the child's development and their brain domains. And then afterwards, it takes a fair bit of work to support the family with a diagnosis understanding. Mm. So we've got some of our team who go out to schools and will give some information to the school once we've made a diagnosis. So that requires quite a lot of manpower. So it's been a gradual increase in serviceability over those years. And then, Bola, you've got got a whole clinic here within the CDS. (laughs) Yeah, we do. And so the CDS does Mm. look at children with other diagnoses or undifferentiated developmental condition so it's just one part of what the CDS work is and children who come through our other clinics um, the staff all now have started asking about antenatal alcohol exposure uh, when they're seeing children who've got developmental delays and so sometimes the children are identified from within our other clinic group and referred into this specific FASD clinic day for more specific and specialized assessments Okay, guys, next question. Starting from the psychologist side of the room, uh, would you, could you tell me how your role assists um, people with FASD and their carers? Look, our primary role in the clinic is assessment. And when we're looking at FASD, we're having to look across 10 domains of essentially development, cognition, and children's attention. You know, what does that look like? We look at executive function processing, which is really just, you know, the brain kind of planning, organising information. Um, We're looking at memory. Um, So it's quite common for children who experience FASD to have problems with memory. 
Um, so we're doing quite a lot of assessment around that as well. So the psychology role actually, because we're trying to tease out what's happening in the brain, because it's actually, that's where the disability is for these kids. There's a lot of assessment for, mm -hmm. for psychology. Like I know Jess is working here a few days a week at the moment in the YFAS program and then in our clinic, you know, lots of assessments happening um, just in that psychology role. So we're covering a lot of ground yeah. in direct and indirect assessment, which really just means interviews with carers, carers completing lots of assessment information, questionnaires, and then we're trying to pull that together mm. just from a psychology point of view. But mm. I don't know, Jess, is it? Yeah, you, you said it really well. I think one of the other things is just with the mental health stuff, you know, you just want to look, I guess, holistically at what could be going on for the child. So it could be things like, you know, adversity or, you know, trauma, um, uh, just, you know, like you mentioned, just anxiety, like, you know, all of those mental health factors just impact us so much every day mm. that, yeah, I think that's probably, for me, I feel like that's one of our biggest roles um, in the psychology aspect. And the team, we all do it as a multi, you know, disciplinary team approach. So I guess I think your question was about like supporting them. So that's kind of what we do in the assessment phase. Yeah. And then I guess along the process, like as well, you know, if we start to see things that are kind of unsupported along the way, like we'll, we'll just reach out how, however it's appropriate at the time and say, hey, are they getting support for this mm. kind of intervention? Have Has the family looked at this or have the caregivers investigated this? You know, just to make sure that, yeah, they are. The, we the mental well-being kind of thing? Yeah, just all, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's probably the most common thing that, particularly for younger children, yeah. carers often not having on the radar the mental health side of things. And particularly as we start to directly assess kids, it becomes really apparent that there's mm. a lot of mental health difficulty going mm. on. Well, I mean, people like to treat the uh, the injuries they can see, I guess, with mental injuries. You don't really see it unless you until you can see their mental state, I guess. Yeah, and especially FASD, right? Like some people call it the hidden diagnosis, you know, because you don't, it's not always a physical disability that you see. So it's it more sits into that kind of hidden aspect. So, yeah, once we can kind of see it on paper with, the, with all of the information we're collating, yeah. I was just curious, just, oh, sorry to interrupt you. No, that's fine. I'll just keep the ball rolling. But Nicole Lord, about the, the speech therapy? Yeah, so um, the speech um, pathologist role is mainly looking at language, speech mm -hmm. sounds also, but primarily looking at a child's language development. And we're just seeing in terms of their speech and language if they're on track or if they're behind um, compared to other children their age. Is that a common symptom with ch um, children diagnosed with FASD, the, the speech impediment or speech problems? Well, the research that's coming out, it is about half of children with mm. FASD will have, um, perhaps even a little bit less, um, will have some some language impairment, but it isn't a, um, one of the primary diagnosis that but it it is a factor and can be impaired in children with FASD. Quite often it might be their understanding of language and so they might be able to speak what mm. people consider to be reasonably normally so mm. teachers and parents might not identify it yeah they might think that they can talk quite well mm. and they haven't identified them to have had delays in their talking oh, yeah. but it's actually really about their understanding and processing of what other people are telling them 
And that's where you really need a speech therapist's specialised assessment to pick that up. What about occupational therapy? So occupational therapists are essentially looking at how people engage in everyday living Mm -hmm. activities in their occupations. The role, particularly on the FASD um, diagnostic team, is to really explore motor and movement performance. And what we are finding out through the research is that um, children with FASD do have a unique kind of movement difficulty profile, um, particularly their fine motor skills, which are the hand skills, um, things like handwriting, um, manipulating small objects, balance is is another area Mm. that's particularly affected with children or people with FASD. Um, So the role within the diagnostic process is very much looking around that movement and how movement can be affected, because movement is another part of the brain, uh, Mm. it's controlled by the brain, and that's another part that can be affected. From a service provision perspective, occupational therapists can certainly help um, problem solve with families and caregivers about how to help that child engage in everyday occupations, things like self-care, getting ready to go to school in the Mm. morning, organising themselves to get to school in the morning. We do have a role to play around regulation and sort of helping kids, psychology, helping kids sort of really manage sort of their emotions and um, behaviours, particularly in response to the environment around them and Mm. processing sensory information. Dealing with emotions, particular um, trouble with kids with FASD? Yeah, I'll probably let um, the psychologists (laughs) talk more about it. It can't, like it's, so yeah, it's one of the 10 areas that we assess for. So you see the emotion dysregulation behavioural a lot in that we assess. Kate touched on the sensory Mm. stuff there, like that that can be a, um, a common kind of thing that we see a bit, you know, like so, and it doesn't have to just be, you know, physical sensations, but it's just like an overwhelming kind of response to the environment. So mm-hmm. talking about like your yeah, tolerance levels, I guess, and mm-hmm. we just often see them having meltdowns or just, you know, not easily settled or triggered easily, yeah. I think would be fair to say. Yeah, and, and probably some of that too is the brain difference that can be happening for mm-hmm these kids where it looks like some of the area of difficulty or area or one of the primary areas of damage can be in that frontal part of the brain and that's actually when we talk about executive function processing part of that is about planning organizing information but it's also about emotional regulation as well you know and a lot of that happens in that frontal area of the brain it's like you know that frontal area of the brain is like our orchestra conductor (laughs) and you know that's actually directing a lot of our behavior our emotion our thinking Mm -hmm. and for these kids there's something different Mm. going on there where the orchestra conductor is not quite sure what they're doing (laughs) Mm. yeah so and it's kind of then you know their emotions are, are you know problematic for mm. them or their behavior directing their own behavior is really problematic mm. but also then it's about their thinking and yeah. being able to organize you know their thinking mm. even though underneath that they might actually present as quite bright well if you want to we'll keep mowing down the line <laughs>
Nicole? Get, so there's two Nicoles in the room. I get, <laughs> sorry about this. Get confused quite easy. How do you help in the role of kind of diagnosis? So my role, I'm the social worker on the team. So essentially a lot of my role is around holding the families and supporting the mm. carers through the process. So I sort of come into it often early in the process, like sort of in that pre-clinic stage, doing some of the early engagement with families, making sure the referral information is adequate so that we can proceed, um, making some of that initial contact with families and particularly where children are in the care of their biological parents. There's obviously that added layer of difficulty where you know there's often some guilt and those sorts of things tied in with especially if you know biological mum is still involved around you know that maybe she feels like she's to blame or has caused this in some way so it's about talking and working through some of that with families and seeing whether they're actually you know ready to embark on this journey and and ready to face so your focus so your focus is not only on the the child but also on their carers as well the parents yeah so i mean my contact with the child is fairly minimal i guess my Mm. my contact is primarily with the carers or the parents because a lot of the kids we see also if they're not with biological parents they Mm. may be with grandparents placed in the care of grandparents or possibly with foster parents so quite a significant number of the children we work with have had some child safety intervention maybe a history of trauma so it's it's often interfacing with child safety and getting the adequate consents and things for parents depending on what's happening so just and then engaging foster carers and other people who might need to be involved is that always difficult or is it is it depends from carer to carer it definitely depends and i think you know some some parents are much more ready and and open to to, you know, all they want is the best for their child and they're prepared to put their own needs second. And sometimes parent find, parents find it a lot more challenging facing the prospect that their child may be diagnosed with something that they may feel was preventable in some way. So often it's around explaining to people, you know, it's like Heidi said before, no parent sets out to you know intentionally harm their child by drinking alcohol in pregnancy a lot of women don't know they're pregnant and are just living their normal life out on a weekend to a party or something and having a drink and then a week later find out they're pregnant you know when it's unplanned yeah so it's it's often just working through those things with the families and the parents and making sure that they're kind of ready to face what what might be the outcome i'm just going to take you to a different question guys why is it so important to diagnose FASD? What, what are the benefits? That's what I wanted to know. It might sound like a stupid question to you guys, but just why is it a benefit? Heaps of reasons. <laughs> and I think it's a good question because it's yeah. a question it's we question ask question. a lot, don't we? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. Uh, Nicole? Yeah. I've been working in this clinic since the beginning um, of time. No, just since it began. <laughs> and that's certainly a question I had initially. And I feel like having spent a few years and a few tears getting this, these clinics up and running and doing quite a few feedback for carers, I've come to some understanding as to why it's important. And I think we are with FASD where we were with, you know, for example, autism, maybe a decade ago, maybe two, it's just not known enough about. And there are some families that are really struggling, particularly, you know, foster families, but other families um, with children with really complex needs that don't have answers. And it's a really hard condition to understand because children will often have real strengths in some areas and real deficits in other areas. And they've got this emotional volatility and behavioral problems that are really hard to manage and, and really hard to understand 
But what I see happen when people get the diagnosis, particularly we spend some time with schools and teachers, is that it, it switches on a light bulb for them because they come into a meeting saying, oh, you know, he did this and did that. And you, then you try and explain to them, actually, he doesn't mean it. It, it doesn't come from a... It's not a decision that he makes to behave that way. His brain isn't working very well for him. He's got this brain damage caused by alcohol and, you know, first aid. So that not only provides some sort of uh, empathy to that? Mm. To it does. Mm. It changes perspectives mm. and it certainly, from what we've seen, helps people change what they do to help the child. Mm. That's good. Uh, you had something to add, Jess? Oh, and I was just going to say, and on like, like you know, so that's the individual benefits. And then like on like, I guess a global or national, you know, state, the bigger level is just FAS, unmanaged FASD mm. can have. I think it's just, it's a benefit to the wider community to be able to diagnose and intervene, you know, as young as, as possible. Yeah, just to kind of help and support people from going down the path of, you know, you know, poor mental health or criminal activity or, you know, Mm, well, this kind of leads to my next question. Is there more the medical profession could, could be doing about FASD? Or let me expand it out to, is there more that peop, normal people could be doing about FASD, not just the medical profession as a whole? I think the message of no alcohol at any time needs to be clearer. Like as a mum of young children myself, there mm. was certainly a mentality of a glass or two doesn't hurt, but it's not true message isn't you know no alcohol is safe you know, I, I heard from louise gray she's no alcohol there's a lot of myths around other alcoholic beverage like red wine or irish <laughs> cream that that was good for pregnancy yes. but yes. it's actually not mm. so that's just none is there is there anything else that you think that i don't know, anything else than anything oh um kate yeah i still think just the message that it is a brain impairment mm. and it's this notion of that, that, that child or that person with FASD, it's not that they won't do what you want them to do, it's mm. that they can't. That notion of can't rather than won't, so mm. their brain can't get them organised or ready or well regulated to be able to have that good behavioural or emotional response to the situation and people around I think the community as a whole needs to really understand that be more empathetic towards Absolutely. towards that yeah definitely I think that's definitely a must for so the community it's more than just parents it's, and caregivers it's teachers it's the justice system it's it's sort of at that sort of broader sort of state and national level I think there needs to be a greater sort of understanding and appreciation mm. Hopefully with more research, that'll become more proficient. That's the hope. Mm. But also with more discussions like this, yeah. making mm. more awareness mm. and a deeper understanding mm. across all levels of society. So coming back to your, could the medical profession do more? I think certainly we've got a responsibility to keep training ourselves and allied health people in our community, as well as teachers, ed other educators so that those referrals can come and so that appropriate diagnoses are made and then that leads to appropriate management and treatment plans. Mm. And more understanding as a whole. Yes. Well, that's that's all the questions I've got now. <laughs> but I'd like to thank you all again for, for agreeing to speak to me and just want to thank you all for the wonderful work you do for the clinic. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having us. Right. Yeah, thanks for having thanks. us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. 
please come back next week for the next episode of Our Little Podcast. Any questions about today's episode, then please check the links in the show notes for more information. Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality was brought to you by Kurt Lewis and No FASD Australia. All rights reserved. For more information about No FASD, then go to www.nofasd.org.au. Thank you.